0: I am Simone Cipriani and I am an officer of the United Nations.
1: And I'm Claire Press and I'm a sustainable fashion journalist.
0: You are listening to the Ethical Fashion Podcast. We can change the world.
1: I've got a soft spot for this week's guest. She is actually my friend. She is Claire Bergkamp. I met her when she was working at Stella McCartney, but these days she is the COO, Chief Operating Officer of Textile Exchange.
0: A global NGO, a global organization that deals with a huge work in on materials for the fashion industry, the sustainability of materials. They have produced a whole body of standards around materials and around circularity, which is a very important issue because this industry won't be able to achieve net zero by 2050. Unless there is a strong drive in terms of circularity and the textile exchange is doing a lot of work in this sense.
1: And for EFI, materials are just as important as for anyone else in production. It's 70% or something of a garment's but impact, Absolutely,
0: yeah? absolutely. And the starting point of a supply chain is materials. So that's also the starting point of the journey towards sustainability.
1: We've got some tough questions for Claire.
0: Indeed, we, we will have some tough questions, but she likes them and I'm sure <laughs> she will. answer them in a brilliant way welcome to the podcast to claire Burkamp of textile exchange present chief operating officer but very soon chief executive officer of the organization we are so happy to have you with us on this series which is all about esg and sustainability We are going to grill you on materials, of course, which is such an important topic.
2: Sure. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Um, So yes, I work at Textile Exchange. I've been here for a little over two years now. Um, Before joining, I was at Stella McCartney for almost nine years uh, where Simone and I crossed paths um, during my time there. Of course, yes. Yes, we did. We did a great project together in Kenya. And so, yeah, Textile Exchange is a global nonprofit. We focus on tier four, which really is raw materials. Really, anything, you know, when you think about the supply chain that's pre spin. So, that's the cultivation, the production, the extraction, the farming, um, up through, you know, the kind of preparing of the raw materials to enter the supply chain. So, also including things like scouring, ginning, really that, that raw material part which for a lot of companies is the majority of their impact. And even if it's not the majority, it's certainly some of their impact. Mm. So we really focus on inspiring and equipping people to address these problems. We are focused around an organizational strategy that we call Climate Plus, which is focused on greenhouse gas reduction, but not focused on that in isolation. The plus stands for biodiversity, soil and water as well as partnerships. And it's really that idea that to address climate change, we have to look at things in combination. If you focus on carbon alone, we call that kind of carbon ton of vision, we think you'll miss the point. Mm-hmm. So keeping biodiversity, soil health, other topics, you know, circularity, animal welfare, uh, human rights, all in the picture and not saying we're only gonna look at carbon. And I think because if we do that, we really will miss what we're trying to get globally.
0: The experience at Stella McCartney was so important for you. I understand. I remember when we were together and those foundations were very solid. We are at work again with Stella McCartney now. You may not know it, but we are back into business together. How important was for your professional development, for your professional path, the experience with Stella McCartney?
2: Oh, extremely important. I mean, I uh, moved to London not long before I started at Stella, a couple years before, to do my master's. And I learned a lot, of course, during that. I worked closely with uh, Dillis Williams, who I know has been on uh, Wardrobe Crisis, uh, Claire's other work, and is just great. Um, learned a lot from her. She really helped me, mentored me through that. Um, and I started at Stella not long after I finished my master's and was the first person hired at the brand to focus on sustainability. So over the nine years I was there, I learned an incredible amount, Um, learned how to build a program. Um, You know, of course, the brand always had sustainability embedded in it. Um, Stella brings that, you know, it's her company. She founded it with that ethos. But it was incredibly important to me and a huge honour to really be able to build out that, you know, more systematic approach to embedding sustainability into operations, into sourcing. I also oversaw uh, human rights and innovation and helped Stella launch her foundation during the time I was there.
1: It's funny looking back over those years, how much has changed. You say nine years, and that's two years ago, you started at Textile Exchange in 2020. A heck of a lot has changed since then. I feel like... It's a completely different landscape, isn't it, in terms of what is where the scope of ambition, but also just how much pressure there is to act.
2: Yes, I completely agree. I mean, and from when I started to now, I mean, in this space, because before I uh, moved to London, I was in a totally different space in the film industry. Uh, I think it has been, you know, it's been monumental, the shifts we've seen. It feels slow because of how much time we know we don't have. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we really know that we are up against a, click, a you know, a ticking clock here of not having a lot of time left to address these issues without seeing uh, systems failure, you know, across uh, our natural ecosystems. But in that amount of time, the focus on sustainability, on ESG, on these topics has changed massively. There, it's embedded in a way it just wasn't before.
1: We're not here to talk about Stella, but since you just mentioned it, I really want to know what did you work on together? We did uh,
0: some collection of bags that were designed by Stella, in order to be produced in Kenya by our artisans at the Efi. In those days, Stella has never used, of course, leather. Stella used to send some of the materials from Italy and uh, and the, the, all, all the collection was designed in um, in Bergamo in Italy by the product development center of Stella and then all the sustainability was assessed and developed with Claire and her team, and in those days, we learned that we needed to have a presence in Kenya in the export processing zone because we needed to receive materials from outside. Up to that point, we were only processing materials from, from local materials. And this is why we created our first presence in the EPZ. And today, thanks to that collaboration, we are also able to process some of the materials we produce in other African countries that has become a hub for our, our African work and this is thanks to the to the to the collaboration we started with Stella McCartney really and today just this season we are back into business together with a beautiful product just Developed prototype, which will be in the shops next summer.
2: I love hearing that. That's great. Oh, Claire,
0: thank you. It was a really, really a solid foundation for this collaboration. This
2: excellent. I'm so happy. Happy again. Simone, I should tell you, I still carry uh, one of those bags. It's really? It's one of my favorite bags. <laughs> yeah, one of my absolutely favorite bags. Uh, they're beautiful, Claire. They're, they the blue were canvas one. bags that were hand. No, it's the one with the uh, kind of python or snake skin print. Ah, okay. With the print. With the gray and white. And they were, because they were these canvas bags that then the artisans did hand printing on or you know screen printing and beautiful yeah
0: local canvas local cotton screen printed by the artisans we also did the collection of sandals
2: yes i remember that but the bags for me like you know it's such you always want a nice big tote it's a good big tote it's sturdy i have it to this day i travel with it all the time i love it while we're getting off topic i'm just going to say this too because i've got a
1: bag from mimco and another one actually from the Karen Walker collaboration and they're ancient and I use them all the time. Oh, But they're so good, yeah. I carry my podcast equipment around and it's heavy and it never breaks, it never, it's amazing. So actually that is testament to it.
0: That's one of the keys to sustainability, Claire. I, I
2: know, durability. I
0: started, yeah, well-built, <laughs> yeah. well-built, started, well-made with good materials, they're long-lasting. Well, that's important. I'm super happy to hear that.
2: Yeah.
1: Okay. so. I want to find out about what you're doing now, Claire, and huge congratulations on the recent announcement that you will take over as CEO as of January 2023. Well done. In the Vogue business announcement or reporting of this announcement, the lead really stuck out for me. They said at the top of her agenda, she will be asking hard questions. What will those hard questions
2: be? I, I mean, uh, uh, fair that you're asking. I don't know that it's only about hard questions, though. I mean, the approach that Textile Exchange has and it will continue to have and has always had is both about pushing, but helping. You know, so it's, it's not it's not we're not really we're not an activist organization in that way. You know, we're not there to only kind of catalyze change through uh, pushing, but really to hold hands and kind of help pull the industry with us. Um, that approach is really embedded. It's always been, um, you know, I guess the way that um, Loray has always said it, who's our co, one of the co-founders of the organization and current CEO, is we're there more to name to fame than to name to shame. You know, we really believe that, you know, pointing people in the right direction, showing that it's possible, you know, leading with positivity is the way to get this to happen. But accountability and integrity are critical in that. I think that my personal feeling is that you know, know, we're talking about kind of the history or the kind of trajectory of the industry on this topic is that, you know, we started with pilot projects because we had to as an industry. We started with proving that things could be done in a small way. I I personally feel like we've done that work. We have now proven that you can source sustainably, that materials can be produced in a better way, that we, you know, the industry has created uh, tons of different programs and initiatives and interventions to help make these changes. And so I think where we're entering into now is the need to scale, to need to double down, to make big bets and to get this to happen, not in a small way, but in a big way. You know, when we look at materials specifically, each material category, you know, the preferred, the more sustainable option is still the minority. You know, it varies category to category, but no matter what, you know, we're looking at, you know, maybe 20%-ish at the very, very most of any one category being lower impact we have to have that over 50%. It can't be the minority. It has to at least be that, even if it's a small majority, it has to be the majority of what we're doing is being done in a way that is taking into consideration the system that it's a part of, ecosystems, the impact, the humans, the animals, all of it. Um, and so I think that's the shift that we're you know making and have been making, well, even for the past couple of years is towards acceleration in a way from kind of disparate efforts that aren't adding up to what we need to see.
0: Shall we We try to break down the impact of materials? On, sure. The impact of materials is huge. It's huge in terms of climate change. It's huge in terms of loss of biodiversity. It's huge in terms of freshwater use, natural resources, everything, and when they are produced, but also when they are part of garments as, as, as pre-consumer and post-consumer waste. Shall we have uh, uh, some, sh- some figure about the impact of materials?
2: You know, when you look at, if you break it down into tiers, tier one being finished good assembly. So the kind of cutting and sewing, tier two being material production, yes. which is that weaving and dyeing, tier three being raw material processing and tier four being uh, raw material extraction. Uh, tier four, which again is our primary focus, is around 24% of the global industry impact. So if you look at all All of what's happening in apparel, Uh, it's twenty four percent, and tier three is fifteen percent. Every
0: kind of impact, I mean, climate impact in general, twenty four percent.
2: That's a greenhouse gas impact.
0: Greenhouse gas impact. We are we are focusing on climate impact, greenhouse
2: gas emissions. Yeah, that's that's the one that's the most measured, is what I would say. So it's not like I said I don't believe that that's the whole picture, but based on the data and the metrics that we have now. That is the primary lens that we're looking at reduction.
0: It's the biggest emergency. And so we are focusing on that, of course, yes.
2: And and the measurements are better defined. You know, we're better at measuring uh, greenhouse gas emissions than biodiversity impact. The metrics on how we're going to measure that, you know, it's very much a work in progress being led by the science-based targets for nature initiative. Mm, it's much more available, yes.
1: Interesting, though, earlier where you said we have to ward against climate tunnel vision and I think we've talked in previous episodes on this series, Simone, about how I think it's fair to say the industry to date hasn't done the greatest job on focusing on some of those other impacts, biodiversity being one that stands out. But sticking with climate, you mentioned before, Claire, climate plus is the strategy that textile exchanges is promoting. Talk to us a bit more about that. What does it look like? Um, and also, what was the focus? And you've just had your annual conference in Colorado. What, what were people focusing on there?
2: I mean, a lot of what we were focusing on is unpacking the plus in Climate Plus. So looking at and talking about and creating solutions and presenting solutions on those topics. So biodiversity is a big one. Um, It's one where we've played a leadership role, I think, when it comes to industry accountability. We created a few years ago in collaboration with the Fashion Pact under the Jeff Grant, Uh, the biodiversity benchmark, uh, which is, I think, really the the main tool used by the industry to track progress on how companies are approaching biodiversity. So at a a corporate level, um, we are starting to measure that. What we haven't started to measure in the way that we need to is on the ground impact on biodiversity. And so we talked a lot about that. We talked about kind of the direction of travel. Um, We are, you know, not not planning to create anything that isn't aligned with what's going on at a global level. Um, COP 15 is coming up, which is the biodiversity COP in Montreal. So there'll be a lot more work coming out around that. Um, For us, we're going to be there and engaging heavily on the topic. We think that the fashion industry has an important role to play here. And tier four, you know, the raw material part is where the biggest impact on biodiversity is. Uh, we talked a lot about regenerative agriculture. Um, it's a big a big topic for us as an organization. We launched our community of practice on it, uh, which is really an effort to convene and bring together a lot of the amazing work that's happening around the world on the topic. Um, regenerative is... Uh, I guess, a non-regulated word, a non-defined word in a lot of ways. Uh, And there's something good about that because it needs to be place-based, but also something very dangerous about that because it could mean that we don't uh, do anything with it. It can mean anything to anyone. Um, And so trying to create a bit more of a boundary um, and guidance around what really does lead to regenerative outcomes in textile production systems. How
1: interesting, I I feel like I'm imagining the listener asking you, okay, how would you personally define it? But maybe I
2: should ask you, how does Texas Exchange define it? Um, we, we define it based on the outcomes we want to see, you know, and so a lot of those outcomes are climate plus outcomes. So, you know, increased soil health, increased biodiversity, the beneficial impacts um, that you want to see on the ground. We acknowledge very much and it's necessary to acknowledge the fact that our regenerative agriculture is based in indigenous wisdom. Um, and that it does need to be place based, that it isn't going to be a checklist in the same way some of our other you know systems have been able to be created around because it's based on the place. And that's very important. So it is looking at that local ecosystem and what you can do to have a beneficial restorative impact in that place. But we know that we have to have some rules around it. Otherwise, again, you know, anyone can claim anything. And what we don't want is this to be an opportunity for, Greenwashing, you know, and there's been and that was another big topic is around data and greenwashing for us. Um, You know, it's been very top of mind in the industry. There's been so much movement in the EU with the legislation around stopping greenwashing. But then at the same time, there's been this equal kind of now conversation around green hushing, around if we regulate it to death, are people going to be afraid to say anything? Um, and what is that balance around being able to communicate something? You know, when you are actually sourcing better without overclaiming, you know, and saying that this is a perfect product because there is no product without impact. Um, and so, a lot of talk book around that.
0: Indeed, you have a lot of creative writing in corporate sustainability reporting, and the fact that there isn't a single standard, the great standard, on corporate sustainability reporting produces this outcome today. We have financial reporting which is done according to the international accounting standards so they are all comparable and then you have sustainability reporting which is creative writing and it's difficult to compare one sustainability report with another indeed and, and that's the problem but i have a tough question about the industry and i want to quote uh, something that you have said or written uh, i read something uh, attributed to you for every conventional fiber, there is an organic, regenerative, or other responsible alternative. What's stopping the industry then?
2: The number one barrier is price that we hear. These things cost more. They cost more. It costs more to do things in a way that takes into consideration people, planet, and animals. It, it just does. I mean, You know, when you're when you're looking at a system and only looking at yield, you can cut more corners, you know, if you're only looking at how to maximize the outcome, you know, from a pure, let's grow the absolute most amount of cotton on this land at all costs, you know, at all costs to no matter what happens to the people to, you know, the chemicals being used to the seeds being used without considering a bigger picture you can do that lower cost. When you start to take into consideration, all right, we would like to have healthy soil in five years from now. We would like to look at pollinators and biodiversity. We want to make sure that people are paid fairly. You know, the cost of that raw material will inevitably go up a little bit. And so, you know, when companies, you know, depending on where you are in the market, are looking at very slim margins, that there's a barrier there. That barrier is one that we've been talking about for a long time. We kind of call it the price to value paradigm. You know, how do we start to embed the value of these better systems, these preferred fibers and materials into what's being offered and not only focus on the price of them. So shifting away from price alone towards value. And I do think that what's happened with ESG and with public commitments and science-based targets is helping that. I do actually think that there is positive movement, but that is still where we get stuck. And I'd say both price and then traceability. You know, the system is not very transparent, as we know. Uh, the, the, you know the global textile value chain is so multifaceted. You know, we're dealing with so many different types of materials, such huge networks of people to create a product. That getting that traceability, giving that visibility back into the raw material for companies has been difficult. But I, I do think we're making positive movement on both. But that price point is going to be the the killer one way or the other. We have to learn that it's going to cost us more.
0: I think you're absolutely right. The price point and the value point, because the point yes. is, if you see sustainability only as a cost, it's the classic reply of a chief uh, operating officer chief production officer in the industry that says hey to a chief sustainability officer your sustainability eats into my margins and and then and then the chief financial officer reply it eats into the margins Uh, um, i i think you touched the right point it's about value the materiality of ESG, the materiality of sustainability in terms of value financial economic value creation And the point of sustainability and margins in the luxury industry, in the fashion industry, because we all understand fast fashion and small margins, it's a business model that hardly is sustainable. But the business model of the the normal fashion industry, of the luxury industry, may cater for different levels of prices and the different uh, structuring of margins if we consider the kind of value we created sustainability and if you are able to uh, account for this value using using the normal financial metrics, we used to account for value because this is the point, the financial value of sustainability. Otherwise, we'll never get out of that conundrum. But uh, yeah, it's, it's exactly that point. I really agree with you, Claire.
1: I was going to ask you, Simone, what the parallels were that you see in terms of working with artisans.
0: On one side, it's on the materials they may use and on the indigenous knowledge also uh, for protection of biodiversity and all the rest. For instance, in Burkina Faso, where we make luxury fabric, we use rain-fed cotton, organic cotton, rain-fed uh, and it is transformed using traditional dyeing techniques that make use of natural dyes and so on. So the impact is very reduced because of these traditional techniques and because of this ecosystem around the artisans. And then there is the issue of the social impact. If you had, uh, uh, sometimes we try to organize our the profit and loss account of our hubs in the places where we work in terms of investment in human and social capital and when you work with artisans the investment in human and social capital is enormous compared to what you invest in terms of human capital in the industry where the structure of cost is completely different so the artisans also Allow that, but you give me the possibility here, speaking about the artisans, to ask a question, to clear a question. I've been wanted to, to wanting to ask. We work in rain-fed cotton. We work with cotton rain-fed. We use uh, bio-cotton. So, but we are in a niche our cotton represents uh, an incredibly small percentage of the global cotton used by the industry. And it's difficult to scale this model up because rainfed cotton is among in few regions in the world where we work, actually, and it's not the quantity that the industry uses. So is there a future on, on, on the use of cotton or uh, this material is, is going to become a no-go for the industry in terms of sustainability? What, what is your take on that?
2: I think there's a future for cotton. I do. Um, I think, I do think that embedding uh, some of the principles of regenerative will be necessary. One of the, you know, one of the things that the science is showing when the research is showing is that healthy soil has a much higher water retention rate. You need a lot less water if you've got really healthy soil. So, you know, building up that soil health and cropping systems allows for more systems to be rain fed, even in areas that don't see heavy rainfall. Um, I've, I've heard testimony from farmers in Texas during drought, you know, where they're getting extremely low levels of rainfall and being able to grow their crops because of the focus that's been placed on building soil health, building soil that can retain water, you know, and yeah, it may not be a bumper crop yield, you may have a lower yield that year, but you're still reducing the amount of irrigation needed. Um, And so I do think there's a future for cotton, certainly. I think we've got a lot of work to do. You
1: mentioned before, Claire, that there are obviously problems when we look at the textile supply chain around traceability, its complexity, its sheer complexity in size means that it is impossible to have all eyes on all parts of the system the whole time. But we've also been seeing quite a lot of problems with and confusion over the data in different sectors, different materials. What do you think can be done around that question around traceability and the data problems that we're grappling with
2: data data is the topic it's you know it's been the topic it feels like for a long time um and i am just gonna I, from a personal point of view i find it frustrating that we have spent uh, so much time as an industry complaining about how bad our data is and that we haven't spent enough time fixing it <laughs> um so one of the things we've stepped up to do at textile exchange is to help fix it so this year we launched uh, work on new lcas on um, cashmere RWS wool and mohair. And next year, our intention is to launch work on updated global you know, LCAs with regional specificity on cotton, polyester, and leather, the big three for the industry. Um, that is just one part of it. LCAs are not the holistic approach that we're talking about, but they are an important part because they are the underlying data sets that we build on top of. Um, we also, you know, in the same way we talk about Climate Plus, we talk about LCA Plus. Um, LCAs in isolation are just one piece of information. They don't give you a whole picture, but they are an important part of it. And it's a lot of what gets used in corporate reporting, in measurement, you know, especially when we are looking at the greenhouse gas impact, you know, we we do rely on those LCAs. And so having more updated ones is critical. I think that what has happened in some cases is that the fact that we know that the data is not perfect has allowed people to focus on that instead of action. Um, And that's really one of the messages that we've been trying to get across is the data is good enough to know what to do. We have plenty of information to know what to do. We may not have all of the information we need to measure it perfectly and to show progress at a granular level in the way we want to, But we have more than enough data and information to go ahead and make some big bets and get moving. Allowing us to be paralyzed by, you know, data is going to be a disaster for where we have to get to. It's very tempting for journalists. And remember, I was
1: one, uh, a different kind of journalist these days, but to jump on the data gap and then make an enormous story out of it. And I think that that is we're obviously seeing that it's important to call out where there are problems. But what the. You talked about green hushing the unfortunate result of that is that people are scared to open their mouths at all people are frightened to talk about the data they do have in case it's called out as flawed it makes for a very uh i don't want to say dangerous but a sort of tense environment or a fractious environment where it's just not conducive to sharing and doing the work that we need to do collaboratively in order to move it forwards. And and that isn't a very sexy headline either, is it? So that's something journalists don't love.
2: <laughs> no. I mean, and listen, like, I mean, I think we've tried to have perfect data for everything. or There's an interest in it. And I mean, the way that we're trying to kind of help parse that out for people is that you need data to track progress. Absolutely. Like we have to know that we're making the reductions we think we're making. We want to know that we're having the impact we want to have. But there's a lot of principles you can use in absence of that around, you know, doing less harm. Like, that's a great principle. Just do the thing that is least harmful. You know, we can look at that, we can understand that, but that requires a kind of firsthand knowledge of what's going on in the supply chain. Data is a great intermediary for not getting to know what's going on. And I think that's got to we gotta get away from that too. You have to understand these ecosystems, these systems. I mean, in my last work, I had, you know, the great opportunity to visit farms all around the world. And when you actually understand what's happening on the ground, those interventions start to become more obvious. If you're relying only on a spreadsheet and numbers, I think you can get misled.
0: What would be the key questions a brand should ask? about materials?
2: Well, I think this may not answer as simply as you want, but I think it has to be by material to some degree. Um, it's not about this material versus that material. You know, and you, you asked the question before, but I do think it's important to say that every material has a better option. You know, it's not about cotton versus wool, polyester versus leather, It's about, if you're gonna use polyester, what is the lowest impact way to use polyester? You know, polyester right now is the best option that we have globally is recycled polyester. Recycled polyester, the vast majority, is made from plastic water bottles. That is kind of a short-term solution for our industry. Um, we're not always gonna have an infinite supply of plastic water bottles, assuming what's happening is, continues to happen, which is the plastic water bottle world, You know, the water companies and drinks companies of the world collect their own waste and recycle it. That means that that feedstock will be cut off for the textile industry, which means that we as an industry need to be dealing with our own waste and recycling it. And so, you know, the, the right now, what we would call the preferred option is recycled polyester, full stop. But that the what what we consider better recycled polyester will likely change in the next couple of years because we need that textile to textile recycled polyester. And there may be new, you know, new types of polyester. There's been a lot of talk around carbon capture, you know, for synthetics, taking one of the kind of crazy science fiction things that I worked on before, you know, there's some companies out there that use bacteria to um, capture you know, methane primarily, and they secrete a polymer, which can be used to create synthetic materials.
0: This poses a problem. It's, I, I, I agree with you, but it's a problem of competence. You need very technical competencies inside companies. So this means that the Department of Sustainability, but also the Department of Production, the Department of Sourcing, everybody needs to have this technical competence about the origin of materials and the way in which materials can be disposed once the the product that they're incorporated in uh, reaches the end of life. Uh, And and this, I think it poses also a problem of education. A lot of fashion professionals come out of fashion schools where these kind of issues are, are not always completely addressed because they require a scientific background. I mean, at the end of the day, the Chief Sustainability Officer of Kerry, my friend, my, our mutual friend Marie-Claire Tavo, is an environmental engineer. It doesn't come from a fashion education. So you need that kind of scientific background, isn't it? So we, we, we may need to see more scientists and more uh, kind of these competencies in the industry.
2: I think there's truth in that. And I think a lot of it already exists. But there are also organizations like us out there to help, you know, a lot of the people that enjoy in our conferences, engage with us, attend our webinars are people starting out, people that need that baseline, you know, set of information. And you know, we're one of many organizations out there. You know, we're focused on raw materials. You know, there's other organizations focused on other parts of the supply chain, you know, chemistry organizations. There's a lot of, there's a lot of resources that the industry has created and bet on already that can help people on this journey. We're certainly one of them, a textile exchange. Um, I also think that a lot of companies have this information embedded at this point. These are no longer new topics. What I am saying is not new, it's not radical.
0: But what you're saying is that sustainability is a holistic approach. You don't have a recipe. You don't have a blueprint. You need to have a set of competencies of knowledge available, and they are available through external organizations, such as the textile exchange. But you need somebody inside the company who knows where to access yes. these things from and how to make them available for the company. And then you have to bring them together in a, in a, in a sound way. This is why we have developed with the Italian industry an ESG due diligence system to have a structured approach to evaluating risks and then to planning action on managing these risks and using these tools. I absolutely agree with you and I think that the textile exchange is one of the best resources available today.
2: We are trying to make tools to make it simpler. So I do think when it really comes down to it, it does require that knowledge. But we have things like the preferred fibers and material matrix, which is a tool that rates for you in a pretty simplified way. Uh, each of the different kind of schemes out there. You know, it looks at beyond LCA, it includes animal welfare, it includes biodiversity, it includes human rights. It is that kind of more holistic approach to say, all right, you want to source cotton, here's all the different, you know, schemes on cotton. This is how they're stacking up, you know, based on the criteria inside of that scheme. And it's it's not judgmental. It's just a look at, okay, this, you know, program was w- written with this criteria. This criteria will likely lead to these outcomes and this is how it's going to score, we also took on the Global Fiber Impact Explorer, yes. which is a tool that Google created with WWF, which we'll release next year to the public, which is that more um, you know, region specific local look at risk. again, looking at biodiversity. So I do think it's two things. I think when you really get down to it and, and you have to look at it by material. I do not think you compare material to material. I don't think that gets you anywhere. I really, really feel strongly about that, but it is trying I do think there's a blueprint. I do think I do think we're at a point where we have a blueprint. It's not a checkbox you can't just say, but I mean, if you want to source cotton, here's a list of, you know, initiatives that will provide you some results. If you want to source polyester, source recycled polyester is your first stop. If you want to source wool, you know, use RWS wool or one of the programs that is embedding animal welfare and regenerative practices. You know, I do think there's not a single one thing you can do but each material has a blueprint that can be followed. I, I really do think we're in a place where we have that now. Not so not to discourage people. It exists.
0: <laughs> I really like how you friend is not about being judgmental, but criteria, tools, just follow them, just use them and get your way through. Absolutely. Thank you. That that's really the way in which I like to hear it. <laughs> Thank you.
2: Yes, it is difficult sometimes, but it is possible. I think that, you know, some of some of the companies we're talking about, they're huge, you know, they're sourcing massive amounts of volume. But with that comes a lot of power. You know, you've got a lot of market presence. You can shift things.
1: I do have a question that I'd like to ask you since you raised polyester. What is Textile exchanges position on polyester? And do you want to talk to us about trying to ramp up the uptake of recycled? Um, and my question really also I'd like to ask, should we not be weaning ourselves off polyester full stop, given its petrochemical origins and its microfiber pollutant issues?
2: We don't have a stance pro or for or against any fiber material, which, you know, is kind of what I was alluding to before. Polyester is the most used material by a lot (laughs) in the industry. It's over half of, you know, I think it's like 53 or 54 percent of all the materials used in the industry are polyester. Polyester is that. So I think that we have to be realistic and look at how we move away from virgin inputs. That's the primary focus there is moving industry away from virgin petroleum inputs towards uh, closing the loop, really focusing on that textile to textile recycling. Um, you know, Again, we're not, we're not an organization that focuses on circularity as our primary focus, but it's a key part of all of this. But there are other organizations like Accelerating Circularity, that's out there, you know, looking at sorting, Ellen MacArthur Foundation that's been, you know, leading this charge for a long time. And so it's not to say we're for or against anything, but trying to figure out how we move away from the worst. And in this case, we think that's virgin synthetics.
1: But you do have a a goal to try to move a certain amount of it towards recycled, right? We're just not using enough recycled, we're using way too much virgin, right?
2: Recycled polyester is the minority, you know, it's, you know, it's less than 20% of what's being used. We need it to be a lot more uh, virgin polyester from um, virgin input is the majority still of what's being used. And polyester is the most used fiber in the industry.
0: One point that you mentioned is circularity because recycled polyester is part of that. And we all know the circularity index of this industry, circularity rate, let's say, not index of this industry is very low, very, very low. So how to increase the circularity rate of the industry, starting from materials. And the second question is about overproduction. Because this this, this this issue is also linked to overproduction, which is an issue today. Is the industry addressing the issue of, of overproduction, in your opinion, and how? What are the avenues? What are the ways to do it?
2: Oh, well, it's a big one. It's the big one. So um, we talk about it a lot, actually. We don't shy away from this topic because... When we released our Climate Plus strategy uh, at the end of 2020, we also released the modeling behind it. And we have three levers that we talk about um, that's going to help the industry achieve our overarching goal of a 45 percent reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 2030. You know, again, looking at other things, but that's the kind of the goal. One of those is material substitution, which we've talked a lot about, you know, swapping uh, bad for less bad, you know, for preferred. There was something in there that we acknowledge is the innovation gap, which will be filled both by improving data because that in that gap is anything that doesn't currently have an LCA. So that would include responsible wool, regenerative cotton, anything like that, as well as new innovative materials that we think will be part of it. Things like textile to textile recycling scaling. But the third one is slowing growth or dealing with waste, um, really. And we cannot hit the climate targets that we are setting if we don't look at that. It just won't happen. If we continue on the current growth trajectory uh, that we're on right now, it, when we look at raw materials, we, the planet can't sustain that and achieve the reductions we're looking at. We can't continue to extract, produce, grow, cultivate, you know, chop down trees at an increased rate year on year in the way we have been if we're gonna hit our climate targets. So. Dealing with waste and uh, disposability in the industry is a big part of that. I like to try and separate out, you know, people talk about fast fashion. I actually think that is confused at this point. I think it's, we need to break it down between disposable fashion, affordable fashion. We have to have affordable clothing. It's, it's, It's unfair to assume that people can all afford extremely expensive clothing. I think it's a very elitist point of view. We have to create a space for it, but disposable fashion. I don't think that there's no space for disposable fashion.
0: I completely agree with you. The point on affordable fashion is a key point also in terms of human rights, the the right to to, to be decently dressed. So this is a very good distinction. I I really agreed with that.
2: Yeah, but disposable fashion, you know, stuff that's being created only to be thrown away without any kind of perceived value in it, that has to be something we address. So making sure that people understand the value of a product, people want to figure out how to extend the life of products, you know, keep things for longer, that's gotta be part of it. But I don't think that means that everything needs to cost a fortune. I think there has to be a healthy market and a range within that. Um, But that, that just kind of never ending assumption that we can have as much of what we want and throw it away without any Consequence, we have to address. And I think that one of the really interesting things that I'm hearing more about is uh, 1.5 degree aligned communication. So, you know, we talk a lot about the 1.5 degree pathway. You know, that's really where we're still trying to aim. I know a lot of people think that's not even realistic now, but I like the idea of keeping 1.5, the dream alive. Um, But, you know, even if we do go above 1.5, every incremental part of any increase beyond that matters. So, keeping this as low as we can, well below two degrees, is very important. And so we have to really look at this and understand that we cannot continue in the system that we have. We have to really have a full systems change. We have more than enough to get going and we can continue to improve the specificity of our measurements along the way. We have more than enough science and information to head down the path at this point. Just do it.
1: Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening, my friends. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us online at ethicalfashioninitiative.org and we are on Instagram at ethicalfashion. Can you help spread the word and share our story with your friends on social media? Our mission is to work towards sustainable development and create long-term impact in the communities where we operate. Through extensive training and mentorship, we build capacity and enable artisans to produce for the international market. Through this program, workers are empowered and can lift themselves out of poverty. Not charity, just work.